Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab, hosted by the amazing Katie Milkman, behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. You can hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, historians, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to your shows. Pushkin. Hey, Happiness Lab listeners. The intersection between eating and happiness is pretty complicated and something I think about a lot, but it's not a topic we've tackled a lot on the show. Recently, I was invited to appear on the podcast Food We Need to Talk, and preparing for my interview, it really helped me focus my thoughts on this important subject. Just like the Happiness Lab, Food We Need to Talk relies on the latest science to tackle issues like body image, nutrition, exercise, and addiction. I felt totally at home on the show and really enjoyed my conversation with the hosts, Yuna and Eddie. And so I thought you would too. If afterwards you want to hear more smart thoughts on eating, then you should listen to other episodes of Food We Need to Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Just a heads up to our listeners, this episode does involve discussion of eating disorders. If you need more information or need help finding help, go to nationaleatingdisorders.org. I'm Yuna Jata. And I'm Dr. Eddie Phillips, Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School. And you're listening to Food We Need to Talk, the only podcast that has been scientifically proven to help you be happy with your food again. Welcome back to Food We Need to Talk. Thank you so much, Professor Santos, for coming back on to talk about food this time. Yeah. So the first question we wanted to ask you about is, do you think that we view food differently today than we traditionally have in the past? Because I feel like, to me, food has always seemed very utilitarian. You use food to either be healthy or to manipulate your weight. But I don't think that in the past people were so preoccupied with their weight and so focused on health, right? Because they were just eating food to survive. And so I feel like it's completely started to mean this different thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's worth going really way back, right, to how we used to think about food 
evolutionarily, right? You know, I think when we were hunter-gatherers, food was just another one of our basic needs, right? You know, we'd get sleepy and we'd sleep, we'd be cold and maybe put on a blanket or a fur or something. I think when we were hungry, we wanted to eat. And I think if you look at the foods that people were eating back then, you know, like roots and tubers and whatever, you know, in the back in the evolutionary day, very little of it was this sort of highly palatable food. And so I think sometimes we think, oh, today food's so utilitarian, you know, maybe we need to get back to pleasure. But in some ways, I think we need to get back to what food really was. It's just like a way to fulfill our needs. It wasn't necessarily supposed to be this super pleasurable thing that, you know, we, we got a lot out of. And so I think when you take that big historical approach, you realize realize, wow, we're thinking about food in, in a really different way. And it's one of the needs that we've gotten so obsessed about. You know, you talked about regulating your weight or kind of wanting to get fit and things like that. And I think these days we really are super utilitarian when it comes to food. And when you start to realize that it's just an urge, that starts to feel kind of weird. Yeah. You know, when you think about like, you know, if I have an urge to go to the bathroom, right, I have to urinate. I'm not like making a schedule or having an app or like there's not like influencers who are telling me when to go to the bathroom. Like if I'm feeling cold, there's very you know, little infrastructure for like how to get warmer or tips on getting yeah. warm. Like you just kind of obey that need. And somehow we've gotten off track with food. So I'm picturing the folks coming back from their hunting and gathering and the food arrives, and it might just be some tubers. Maybe it was an exceptional day, and you caught an animal of whatever size. If you really went nuts, and you were willing to climb up a tree and smoke out the bees, you got a little bit of honey. But what I'm hearing is that, was everyone clapping and saying, hooray, I'm really happy? Or is it just like, oh my God, I won't be starving for another 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, I think there definitely even were foods back in the evolutionary day that that tasted better than others. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned honey, and I yeah. think honey has these features of the kind of thing that we are out there looking for, this really high caloric, you know, very sweet sort of food. But my guess is that most of the time it wasn't really this sort of pleasure thing. It wasn't like we were, you know, going on our hunter-gatherer Yelp to try to pick their best restaurant, you know, with their best <laughs> cocktails and food. Like, it was just food, right? And, and I think we've somehow built food up a lot. It, in part because, you know, it really is a form of pleasure that we can savor in our lives now, done well. But I think it wasn't always that. And I think, you know, some of the kind of difficult, challenging relationships that some of us have with food now, if we could get back to thinking about food just as fuel, like gasoline that we're putting into our big mm -hmm. human meat tanks, you know, we might end up developing a healthier relationship with eating. Okay, so that's a great segue into what is a healthy relationship to food. I think it's become <laughs> a buzzword. Yeah. Everybody loves to say it, especially on Instagram. Everybody's like, yeah, I'm like really like working on my relationship with food. I'm really good or whatever. It's so vague at this point that I have no idea what they're talking about. So how do you define a good relationship with food? I mean, honestly, I think a good relationship with food is one that you don't think about, right? <laughs> you know, like I have, you know, historically been part of diet culture, right? Like I picked up these norms. I too have a complicated relationship with, you know, should I be eating healthier? You know, is this going to make me fat? Like these kinds of things come in, right? Even for me. But when I watch people who have what I would think of as a healthy relationship with food, they just eat when they're hungry mm -hmm. and they eat something that seems like it will make their bodies feel decent. And then they don't really think about food very much. So I think kind of just the act of worrying about this healthy relationship with food and making hashtags about it that go on Instagram, already <laughs> that's signaling like something is amiss, right? Yeah. Like no one's hashtagging like I have this great relationship with my like, you know, urination or like <laughs> making my body feel warm, right? Like it's just another urge that we have. It's just another need that our bodies have. And so already as we start asking this question, I think it means we got off track. But I think, you know, when we think about a healthy relationship with food, it's one that's not taking up a lot of mental 
mental bandwidth. Mm -hmm. I think when you start having mm -hmm. it take up mental bandwidth already, this is problematic. You know, e even maybe if it's pleasurable, right? Even mm -hmm. if you're obsessed with, oh, what I'm going to eat tonight, I'm really excited about this restaurant and things. I, I think that already is signaling that you might be kind of getting off track a little bit. So that's, I think, point number one is you shouldn't be obsessed with it. You shouldn't have to talk about it. But the second thing is I think that it it's kind of not an emotion that seems to be like very high arousal. Like you're not feeling anxious or sad or stressed. Mm -hmm. It's kind of much more one of these neutral emotions, e even when it kind of verges on the positive relationship, mm -hmm. like you're savoring your food and you're enjoying it. It's not this like extreme thing. It's kind of just like joy. It's like walking around and seeing the nice flowers. It's like a that level of emotion and not one that's taking up a lot of energy and mental bandwidth. Let's add in the texture of food is love. And there's so many cultures where, my God, if you told my wife, if you told my mother-in-law, like not to worry about what they're going to serve when we get together for dinner, that would be sort of a like a negative. So I think more I was answering Yuna's question about the influencer version mm -hmm, of a healthy mm -hmm. relationship with food. I think if you're paying attention to food from the perspective of sort of diet culture and what you have to eat to be healthy, then you have to kind of worry about these sort of more negative emotions, like things like anxiety and so on, right? But if we stop that... Then we can ask, okay, how do we get a more pleasurable relationship with food? And I think that brings us into the healthier versions of cultures that we can have with food, right? Because food is really a super important part of our social connection, mm -hmm. right? Again, done well, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in influencer version of orthorexia where you just have your snacks in your bag and you just eat your carrots mm. on the way to the gym, that doesn't work. But these, you know, recipes that have been part of your culture for generations, food that's part of rituals that are meaningful both for the social connection and for what they represent in terms of how you're representing the world and sort of life changes, these things can be really essential. But they're often less about the food and more about kind of how we're thinking about the food and what it represents in our lives. Mm. Like my guess is it's it's not necessarily, you know, if I think back to like, you know, I don't know, my, my grandmother is cooking. My grandmother used to make these cupcakes and things. It's less about what's in the particular cupcake mm -hmm. and more the narrative and the stories that I have going with it, the fact that it's been part of this tradition and so on. And so that healthy relationship with food is less about the particular food itself. I don't think anybody cares about the macros that are in the cupcake. Mm -hmm. It's really about the narrative and the stories and the sort of cultural background that comes with food. How do we reclaim that? I think it's really hard because that healthy relationship comes with being in a culture that thinks about this stuff. And in, in a lot of ways, we've sort of lost those cultures. You all talk a lot about Michael Pollan, who has a lot of discussion about kind of how we can get back to a healthier relationship with food and how we should think about our food decisions. You know, he talks about, you know, you should go for food and real food that your, your like grandmothers would uh -huh, be aware uh -huh. of. But even my grandmother, you know, I was born in the, it was a child of the 80s and already she was, you know, making food out of boxes and doing <laughs> these things, right? Yep, Already yep. the cultural traditions that I think she grew, had grown up with were kind of fading in my, you know, American upbringing. And so I think, you know, we've lost a lot of that and we need to start building that back in. And I think that's important both for our happiness, but also for our health. You know, I take Michael Pollan's point to be, if you're trying to figure out what a healthy diet is, it's no like one thing or one set of macros. It's often more like the traditional kind of uh -huh. you know, ways that people used to eat, kind of no matter what was in it, right? You take traditional cultures that are much more meat-based or much more plant-based, and they have, you know, some nuance there. But pretty much all the traditional diets are better than what I was growing up on out of the box in the 1980s. Right. So I feel like the message of like not thinking or stressing too much about food 
is really important. But then I feel like with the food environment that we live in today, it's kind of hard to not think about it and still eat, I think, what's good for your body. I have a new roommate that moved in. She loves baking. So now there's just baked goods in the house all the time. And it's like, if I don't consciously think to myself, like, I probably shouldn't be having this all the time, I just would because they just taste good. Do you know what I mean? So how do you, like, balance the idea of, like, these things are everywhere all the time? And even all my social gatherings I've been noticing, like, I've just been going out every other day, guys, and getting food that I know isn't good for me because I've just been meeting my friends because it's the summer. And in the back of my mind, I'm, like, kind of like, oh, like, I feel like it's just, like, happening a lot right now. I don't really like it. I don't really feel like I feel as good. But then I also don't want to be becoming very stressed about it like I used to. And right. I haven't been. I haven't not been going to those social gatherings because there's food there the way I used to. Yeah. And I think this this is the problem, right, is that as food becomes something that we get worried about, that we're paying more attention to, like that kind of, in particular, we might even think of it like a diet mentality, that kind of diety mentality that comes in, whether it's based on health, like really, I just want my body to feel good, or whether it's based on some diet notions, like I want to change the size of my body or I want to become fitter or so on. Both of those have a particular psychological set of features, which is like, it's making us obsessed with stuff, right? Mm. Like we kind of, whether it's a sort of diet mentality or a sort of fitness mentality, neither of them are pretty good when they go along with this sort of anxiousness. And so, you know, the kind of anxiousness you're describing about these sort of social events isn't ideal. But then that, of course, raises the question like, okay, but how do I do that in the environment where there's this hyper palatable food that I know, even if I don't care about, like, even if I'm not in diet head, I still don't want my body to feel super gross right yeah. afterwards, right? And so I think part of that is really trying to come to terms with actually paying attention to how these foods make us feel. There's lots of evidence growing that these hyperpalatable foods really kind of hijack a certain part of our system. And we often talk about it hijacking our sort of pleasure system, what we really like. But I think that's sort of incorrect because when you get down to it, these foods don't necessarily feel that great if you're paying attention to them. You know, a lot of people who engage in mindful eating exercises sometimes have the realization that whatever food they've been obsessing over, say like Hershey's Kisses, they finally eat them and they're like, oh, they're kind of waxy. Like, I didn't, like, <laughs> like in my brain, I had this as this very delicious thing. But when I mindfully really pay attention mm. to what the taste is, I'm kind of not digging it that much. And that plays into this very dumb feature of the way our brains work. It's like the one feature, like, if I could change the way that this part of the human brain work, I would. Which is that there seems to be this weird disconnect in our brains between wanting and liking. And so hmm. liking is like, I eat the Hershey Kiss and how it actually tastes. Like, what's my actual pleasure response to it? Is it tasty? Is it whatever? But wanting is different. Wanting is how much I start obsessing about it, how much I want to go after it, how much when I see an ad for it, I'm like, ooh, that seems really good. You would assume that our brains would be smart, that our brains would put those two circuits together, that we would want only things that we actually liked. But it turns out if you look, that is not how brains are organized. There seems to be this interesting disconnect between liking and wanting. And so you can see that most clearly with drugs of addiction. You know, so take somebody who um, has a heroin addiction. That person has a really strong wanting for heroin, right? They're going to you know, rob their family, get into all kinds of bad behaviors to go after heroin. But because their bodies are habituated to it, when they actually experience the drug, they don't really even like it anymore, right? Mm. They're, they're not getting the same blast that they got maybe the first time they got it. And so that already shows us that there's this disconnect. But I think this is the same kind of thing that's happening with hyperpalatable mm -hmm. food, right? Like, you know, your roommate makes the baked goods and you see them on the table and your wanting system is like, 
go, go, go. Like, take that, <laughs> you know, like, but maybe when you eat it, my guess, you know, I, I'm not, no, like, no, no, like, shade to your roommate. How I'm sure she makes how, really delicious. How dare you? Yeah, I'm your, sending you know. this episode over. <laughs> but it might not be as good as your no, wanting you're totally made it right. out to be, right? You're totally right. And, and what's frustrating about the wanting liking system is I think it runs in reverse, too. I think there's lots of stuff that we like that the wanting system mm-hmm. just hasn't latched onto. Yes. Take exercise, right? Yes. Yeah. We were just talking before we started about, you know, all your deadlifts and going up, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, I have never had my wanting system, like, tell me to go to the gym or tell me to do deadlifts. But I'm pretty sure most of the time I engage in, like, a hard Pilates class or a hard workout. My liking system fires to that in the end. When I'm leaving the gym, I'm having, like, I'm in a sort of euphoria of, like, that felt really good. But it doesn't translate into this sort of wanting to go after things. And I think that's true for healthier foods too, right? There, you know, we're in the middle of summer when we're having this conversation. And right now, like the peaches are just like so good. I had a nectarine the other day that oh, was like God. on the verge of orgasm. But it's like so I, good. I do not still do not have the wanting for those nectarines exactly, in the same way yeah. I would for the baked goods. And so I think understanding the way this system works can help us a little bit. First it just gives us some knowledge about when I'm experiencing this wanting, it might not be an honest signal. I'm probably not going to like this as much as my brain is telling me. My mind's kind of lying to me. But in another way, it can cause us to really start to pay attention more to the things we really do like. And while it is true that the wanting and liking systems are a little bit disconnected, they can sort of update a little bit. Like when you actually start to pay attention to Mm -hmm. your liking. And we know this from work by folks like Hedy Kober, who's a colleague of mine at Yale, who studies drugs of addiction, where she gets, for example, cigarette smokers to really pay attention when they're smoking to like, do you like the way this feels? Do you Mm -hmm. like the way this smells? You know, do you like the way this feels? And people often when they start to pay attention are like, actually, this feels kind of gross. I don't like the smell of this. I don't like, you know, I don't like what this is doing to my body when I think about that. And what she finds is that that can gradually start to update the wanting system. Not perfectly, mm-hmm. but when you really start to pay attention to like, hang on, this was not rewarding. I like really didn't mm-hmm. like this. Then it can kind of do the update. And the same with really mindfully paying attention to the healthy food. If you really focus on the nectarine and think about it, again, you're not probably going to crave it in the same way your dopamine system goes to these highly palatable foods that are literally engineered by engineers in a laboratory mm-hmm. to kind of, you know, be like the heroin. But you can kind of get your wanting system a little bit more on board with going for it. So with other drugs of addiction, the biggest thing that is always like so annoying to me is that like you the, the ideal would be to like not have them at all, right? For the rest of your life. But with food, like it's impossible to do that because you're never going to be able to like never have hyperpalatable food again, right? Unless you like live super, super restrictively. Right. And I think, and, and, and I can't imagine anyone honestly doing that right. without the anxiety, right? I mean, I think there's, you know, there's lots of talk these days in the field of psychology about orthorexia, right? Yeah. Which mm-hmm. for listeners that don't know is this, uh, a kind of, it's not a DSM, like, you know, like categorized official, yeah. official disorder, but it's one that leads to people experiencing a lot of anxiety where you're just really obsessed with eating healthy foods. And so ostensibly, you know, if your dietitian or your nutrition looked at your what you were eating, they might be like, oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Like you look so healthy. Mm-hmm. But in practice, you feel really dysregulated. You feel like you're on this kind of like verge of a binge all the time. It's taking up all your airtime. For you, it doesn't feel good. And so I think that's the problem is that living in this environment of food being so hyper palatable, it's so hard to pay attention without dipping into the orthorexia. I just, I'm such an all or nothing person. Like I would just so much rather have like not care at all or like super care than like 
kind of care. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Like, oh, I have, I have oh, a friend no. who says, I wish, you know, the Soylent companies would just like make the thing that I was know. really healthy yes. and we would never. But that's why yeah. I think we need to get back to the, the question that Eddie mentioned, right? Which is to get back to kind of having real true pleasure in food beyond just the hyper palatability, right? Can we get back to like the way these things were created over time? Like maybe like slowly creating healthy foods, right? Embedding them in our cultures and in our rituals, even if that's sort of starting new cultures and rituals. Mm -hmm. What does that look like, right? If you build up that narrative and that history, it can help there be other things that maybe don't necessarily replace the hyperpalatable foods, right? We're not Mm going to like wipe them out of our culture, but it gives us an alternative of things to pay attention to that might be kind of healthier in terms of our bodies too. Is there a kind of like a literacy around food? And what I'm thinking of is I'm sitting here with a concert pianist to my right. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm effectively musically illiterate. I've never learned how to play an instrument. I will listen to music. I have to remind myself to do it. Uh, it's often, oh my god! <laughs> well, like I, I must no. like w- w- while I'm exercising, yeah. and I would say I'm happier if I'm listening to music. Yeah, but I'm musically illiterate. I mean, I okay. Is the same with food? Like there are some people for whom. That's all they focus on. It can be pathological, as you're pointing out. <laughs> um, and then there's others that could be the happiest people I know, and they just go like, food just doesn't resonate with me. Yeah, I think it's it's complicated. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the research really suggests it's about the narrative that we tell ourselves. And again, not really what's in the food. You know, one of my favorite examples of this that, sh- that shows kind of how funny these narratives can be looked at individuals who are paying attention to different wines, right? You're tasting wines, right? And you're doing that, for example, like in an fMRI scanner. So we can see what's happening in your brain as you're tasting these things. And what you find is that the simple label that you're showing people of the price of this wine affects whether or not they taste it. You know, literally the reward centers in their brain are firing more as they taste it. And so you can give someone oh exactly the same wine and their brains will fire more for that same wine if it's labeled as more expensive, right? So true. And so that that tells us something interesting, right? It tells us it's not what we're tasting. It's kind of <laughs> what we're thinking about as we're tasting it. The um, story. There's a similar paper about tasting Coke and Pepsi. And so a lot of people say that they like Coke better. I also like say that I like Coke better. <laughs> um, but if you put people in a scanner and you don't tell them which is which, people's reward centers fire more for Pepsi. I think just because Pepsi actually has more sugar in it than mm-hmm. sweet and Coke. But if you tell people it's Pepsi as they're drinking, it, then it will fire less. So if they don't know what it is, they like it more than Coke. But if you tell them it's Pepsi, they're like, oh, no, so I don't want to So the story sets the stage. And I think that's powerful, right? I mean, it, I think it means that we can set our own stories, right? You know, so if your roommate's bringing out the cookies that she bakes and she just says, oh, they're cookies, that might not taste as delicious as if you say, these are my grandmother's secret recipe, <laughs> decadent chocolate cookies. Like just totally. labeling something differently actually does make it more delicious to us, right? And so there's there's kind of funny hacks that we can engage in to make things more delicious. Well, I wonder if part of like the reason I feel that way about food is because like for most of my life, really food was just like, like I was trying to eat less of it. Like that was its only purpose, you know what I mean? So I don't know if like part of it is that like, I think one time I saw a nutritionist who's kind of like kind of nutritionist, kind of psychologist. And she was like, you have a lot of fear associated with food and your amygdala is really, the amygdala is the part of the brain, guys, that's like the fear kind of anxiety center of the brain. And it's kind of the oldest part of the brain. It's like very, very deep in your brain. Anyways, and she was saying like, you just have all these connections between food and your amygdala. And like, 
We need to like rewire to have food and like pleasure associated together, not just food and fear. Yeah. I mean, I think there's really something to that, right? I mean, I think if you really have like a, a like clinically, you know, diagnosed eating disorder, you know, you're building in so many negative emotions that come with food, whether it's about eating too much of it or which kinds of it, right? Like it means that you're not no longer thinking of food as this like fuel that's neutral or like a friend that you could savor that you might like, but is this negative, scary, like potentially harmful, threatening thing. And so I think the process of trying to engage a little bit more with food mindfully, you know, might be might mm-hmm. be pretty helpful, you know, because we do know that both, again, the, the stories we tell ourselves about food matter. And so if you have a negative story, that's only going to make it worse. But if you have a positive story, that might be better. But also the rituals that we have around food matter too, right? You know, a, a wine drunk in a really nice wine glass at a beautiful restaurant is going to taste different than, you know, out of a bag, like, you know, I don't know, in a dorm room somewhere, <laughs> like some Ivy League dorm room, right? You know, and so I think we can try to develop different rituals to come up with food. And a lot of, you know, therapeutic interventions for eating disorders as people are eating more, you know, that's one of the things, right? It's like, let's let's try to kind of make this thing not scary. Let's put it in a pretty dish, you know, set the tape, have a nice ritual about it, you know, really take a deep breath before you eat it, really try to pay attention to what does this taste like? You know, how, how would I describe this? Like that kind of mindful eating can at least make you more pay more attention to how things taste. And often when you're doing that, you can notice the, the pleasure that's associated with that. So I have like several thoughts that may be related. Let me, let me give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> so once a year, I have this joyous obligation of going out to the Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Kitchens course. It's in Napa Valley. Ooh. It is at the Culinary Institute of America. And part of it, you're in the middle of wine country. And part of it, they actually have these tables set up and you can go from table to table and do a wine tasting. And my, my first reaction when I tasted some of these remarkable wines that cost like $100 plus per bottle was like, oh, it's like velvet. And and I remember calling my wife and saying, remember how I said I don't like wine? I don't like cheap wine. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm learning from you, Lori, is that what sold the wine to me was, again, the setting and the story that, is it the Vinter? Is that yeah. the, they were actually standing there pouring their their creation and setting me up for this experience. And it was sort of like, of course I was going to, I mean, first off, it really is objectively better. Put me in an fMRI. <laughs> I, we can I, test. We, we can test, we can yeah. test yeah. it. I'm sure someone has. I'll, I'll sign up for that study. <laughs> but I guess what I'm learning is that it's really the setting, the story. Um, can we do that? to get ourselves eating better. I think so and I think you know you know there's some evidence that even right the palatability of you know not so palatable foods right you know the healthier like just a bunch of greens or roots or these kinds of things just the setting can make a lot of difference, right? You know, if you walk into, you know, one of these like bougie New York kind of vegan mm-hmm. places where the stuff is plated really well and you know you're paying a lot of money, the kale that's there is different than the kale that I, you know, grab at the supermarket. <laughs> like just to me, it mm-hmm, just tastes mm-hmm. differently, right? Yeah. So I think that matters. I think who we are eating with seems to matter too. You know, there's lots My of TikTok evidence. account? What's that? My TikTok account. I'm just scrolling. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is part of it. Yeah. yeah. No, I, but I think, but you bring up a really important point, right? Which is that, you know, we act like these healthier foods don't taste good, but in practice, we're not really giving them the sort of mindfulness benefit of the doubt when we're engaging with them. You know, I, I was joking about, the, you know, the snacks that you have in your bag kind of thing earlier, but, you know, as I've sort of made a foray into trying to eat more healthfully, again, not for weight loss or just like to, you know, make my body feel good, sometimes that means, 
eating on the go. Sometimes that means grabbing, you know, a few carrot sticks that are in my bag. And that's not often eating in the prettiest way possible with the best narrative possible. It's just kind of like getting the fuel in to go, right? And so it does feel like we're sometimes, because we're so busy and because we're so easily distracted, Mm -hmm. missing out on these opportunities to really enjoy food well. You know, one of the, the main complaints of people who try to engage in more mindful eating is just like, it's boring. Yeah, it's so right. boring. Like, you're like, oh, like so I have boring. to just eat and not watch, you know, like, not yeah. look at my TikTok videos or not watch yeah. RuPaul's Drag Race or whatever. <laughs> it's like, what, a, you know, um, like, how, how am I expected to just eat, right? Like, it just seems so boring, right? And I think that tells us something, right? Even if we're eating a hyperpalatable food, it sometimes seems boring, right? And that really tells us it wasn't about the food. It wasn't about our enjoyment. It was really about the wanting of the food, right? The getting of it and the enjoying doesn't really matter as much as we to thought. To the advertisement? set the, the set the wanting i mean the double yes. bacon cheeseburger right uh, oh, will make it your totally. way i mean part of them is that you know like most advertisements they're often very inaccurate google how companies make these palatable the food foods styling. look good yeah. yeah you know like ice cream Hilarious. in most food ads is actually just like Shaving crisco or, or like yeah, yeah. cuz they can't it would melt under the lights right and so you know so a lot of them are kind of faked but yeah i think those things are created to really amp up our wanting system i mean it's even like i have an association with starbucks i've loved starbucks since i was like 15 i've been a gold member since that age anyways and so <laughs> i used to go there every day and like now i don't because i can't afford it anymore but even when i go it's just like i'm like oh this latte is so good it's so much better than and everybody hates starbucks coffee people that actually like coffee are like starbucks is not good and it's just like the even the brand of starbucks like, I just love the idea of I'm going to get my Starbucks, if that makes sense, just yeah. because it's something I grew up with and it's so comforting to and me. And even branding, right, can matter a lot. You know, I mentioned this Coke and Pepsi. You know, again, yeah. we, when we drink it, the neural activation fires more for Pepsi, but knowing it's Pepsi versus Coke makes us think really yeah. differently about it. I think knowing something Starbucks makes yeah. us think think differently about it. And I think this gets also back to, you know, we were talking about why are these hyperpalatable foods, you know, so addictive? Why do they kind of trigger this wanting system so much? And I think part of is that like the not so hyper palatable foods they don't tend to have the marketers or the branding behind them like my nectarine from the farmer's market (laughs) doesn't come with like you know a logo that I associate with that nectarine that's bright that you know triggers my memories about eating previous nectarines it's just a nectarine right and so I think that's that's one of the things that we're pushing against as we try to engage in eating more healthfully is that most of the healthy stuff just doesn't have any of that kind of branding narrative nuance that gets our wanting systems and going. And no health claims on the packaging, too. So I think we had a figure in our book that was like the amount of money spent on like food marketing by food companies, and it was like billions of dollars. And then the amount of money spent on like agriculture marketing, like marketing vegetables, basically, and it was like $200 million, And it, it was like less than 1% of the marketing budget or whatever. Also, all the packaging in the supermarket, if you look at the packaging, you would think the healthiest food is in the middle of the supermarket, right? And then all the vegetables have zero packaging. So it's like, I don't know, it is all very deceptive. We'll be right back. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. In a few weeks, my friends and I are traveling to see a once-in-a-lifetime event. On April 8th, we're headed south to check out the solar eclipse. And as usual, while we travel, my entire crew will be staying in an Airbnb. Staying in an Airbnb always makes me feel a bit more at home when I travel. But during this trip, I started to think more about what would be going on with my home while I was away. Because when you're away from home, your place could be an Airbnb. So why not consider becoming a host yourself? Because if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you pretty much have an Airbnb. Hosting is a great way to earn some extra money. Plus, hosting is a lot easier than you might think. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. And we're back with Professor Lori Santos of the Happiness Lab, a professor of psychology at Yale University. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was whether restriction makes the wanting part even more mismatched with the liking. Because I remember when I was like, oh, I can't eat this, that, and other. Um, the only thing I was allowed to eat at the end of the week that was like my treat thing was Halo Top ice cream, which is like the high protein ice cream. If you don't know, Eddie, it's like, I, it's like pr- ice cream with protein powder. Been basically, there, done right? that. Yeah. yeah okay. Everybody, everybody says it's terrible. Because I was having no other treats, I was like, Halo Top is the best thing on the planet. And I remember I'd wait all week for my, ha- and I could, I was like, I can have a whole pint because it's only 300 whatever calories. And then I would get it and I'd be like, this is, like, not good. Why did I wait all week? But I'd eat the whole thing. So I was like, I've waited all week for this. I have to eat it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I think your liking system was more honest, maybe, <laughs> yeah. about the halo top. But, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so so another kind of dumb feature in the brain is that our brain really doesn't have any way to to kind of tell itself not to do something. So take, like, you know, let's get back to sort of drugs of addiction. Like, you're walking down the street, and you're a smoker, and you see a non-smoking sign, right? Ostensibly, the sign is telling you not to smoke. Mm-hmm. But we don't really have any representation in our brain for not smoke. What our brain sees is smoking, and it tries to shut that down. So it turns out that if you look at the cravings that smokers experience, they experience more craving in the presence of no smoking signs. Oh, my God. And the reason is, like, you just they're just, like, walking down the street, maybe not thinking about smoking, and they look, and they're like, smoking? Oh, wait, don't do that. But what's in their brain is, like, smoking, 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 right? I think that insight tells us why restricting often— comes mm. with binges. Why, in the words of someone who's been on my podcast a lot, Andrea Wachter, who studies mindful eating, she calls it the diet riot roller coaster. The diets often go with the riots, in part because just the act of telling yourself don't have it usually comes with you thinking about having it, right? So take your mm-hmm. halo top, right? You're like, I'm not going to have it till the end of the week. I'm not going to have it till the end of the week. But your brain is just like halo top, halo top, halo top. <laughs> and like there's pressures to like kind of squish it down. But really yeah. what it's thinking about is that food. And so a better way to kind of get out of that restriction mindset is actually to find the healthier food that you like. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so instead of like, oh, I can't, I just got to wait on the halo top, no halo top, no halo top. If you thought like, ooh, today, like really good blueberries that just came from the mm-hmm. supermarket or like I got these almonds that are like so fresh and I'm excited about them, right? Thinking about the thing that you actually want to do rather than the thing that you're not supposed to do can be quite helpful. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, pretty much every available study of binge eating suggests it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from having right. a mindset of restriction, right? That's what's kind of leading people to, people don't necessarily binge unless they also have a, even in their head, if they're not acting on it, this urge that they're not supposed to, Mm -hmm. or these are the things they're not supposed to eat. I I love this list of dumb things our brains do. (laughs) You should listen to my podcast. My podcast is all about just like things that Lori think is stupidly designed in the brain. Yeah, Lori's going to come out with like a human brain 2.0 that we can all (laughs) transplant at some point. The other thing I want to ask you about binge eating is that isn't it true that binges also serve some sort of emotion regulation purpose? And we cited a few studies that were interesting in our book that kind of made binge eating analogous to food addiction. And it it said that the research wasn't really conclusive on whether or not food addiction is binge eating, whether or not food addiction is actually a real thing. Maybe they're related. Maybe they're two separate things. But it did relate food addiction or like not being able to regulate food intake, I guess, to substances of abuse. Because a lot of people, when you ask them about it, it's like a behavior they really want to stop and they're unable to stop. And they kind of tell themselves to not do it, not do it, not do it. And they end up doing it and they feel really bad. So it kind of had a lot of similarities to the addiction cycle. So I was wondering what you think about that relationship between addiction and food yeah, I think, you know, the addiction literature in in fields of psychology and psychiatry right now is a little complicated, right? In the sense that, you know, we know that some addictions, kind of more classic addictions, say, you know, like a heroin addiction, for example, those drugs of abuse are literally tapping into chemicals that are kind of part of the wanting system, right? You know, like mm-hmm. like heroin is like, a, you know, these are opiates that are tapping into opiate systems that exist in our brain. So it's like you're abusing the very chemical that is very, very mm-hmm. close to the signal in the brain. There's a more open question about addictions that seem to have all the same features where people binge on these things, they overthink about them, they they want to stop, but they can't, right? Like behaviorally and psychologically, these look the same, mm-hmm. but the substance that you're feeling addicted to isn't like an opiate, right? It mm-hmm. isn't a chemical signaler in a brain. You know, so things like a shopping addiction or an internet addiction right. or a TikTok addiction, or, you know, maybe in a more nebulous case, a, a sugar addiction or a mm-hmm. food addiction, right? Obviously, foods are... You know, they're not direct opiates, but they're chemicals that are playing yeah. a part in this process, right? But there's some debate about whether we want to call that addiction. Yeah. You know, to a psychologist like me, if it's if it's taking up your thought pattern, if it's like messing with your sense of self, if it's messing with your mm-hmm. daily life, it feels addictive, even though we might not want to call it a capital A mm-hmm. addiction. And I think binging behaviors, food behaviors for a lot of people feel addictive. You know, whether mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a drug of choice and that you're kind of eating more food than you want to or comfortable with, whether that's, you know, something like orthorexia, where the thought patterns that you engage in are really, you know, you don't want to keep thinking about healthy food, but you're kind of obsessing with it, like almost like in an OCD way. And so I think even though, again, there's some debate about whether it it, it kind of fits as a kind of capital A addiction that would be in like the psychology journals, it definitely for the people that are experiencing these things is like deeply problematic, you know, beyond just being an eating disorder or something like that. Well, it's also that a lot of people use food to cope with things. Yeah. And I think that's a big thing, right? You know, food really is about pleasure, right? It's a way of getting pleasure. Sometimes it just gives us something to do, right? You know, like you're feeling bored and it's like a thing that you can turn to. Sometimes it's a way of escaping reality, you know, so kind of it's it's a behavior akin to something like cutting, which is another sort of behavior like this, where it's like it just 
is the only thing you can think about. So you can't think about other things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think we're using these foods in functional ways. I think sometimes when we think about disorders of eating, we say like, what's going on? But, you know, minds are smart, you know, despite what I was saying about all these problems with the way (laughs) brains are organized, like our minds are smart, right? And sometimes the best go-to for pleasure, for when you need to stop thinking about something, is something related to your eating. So as we start to wrap up, Absent paying, what does Yale cost now? (laughs) $70,000. What kind of assignment would you give your students in your happiness course about food? Yeah, well, one is to start paying attention to kind of how and why you're eating, right? I think one of the best early steps in mindful eating is to start when you have the urge to eat something, kind of ask like, why? What's going on? Am I actually hungry? Maybe. Maybe I'm bored. Maybe I just saw the food. Like when you have that craving, kind of ask what's going on, not in a judgmental, like I can't have it way, but just in a like curious noticing, like I wonder what caused that urge. And sometimes when you start to engage in that process, you notice it wasn't really about hunger. It was about some emotion. Like you were bored or maybe you were in a good mood or you were excited or you just saw it, right? Like that's the first step, I think, to noticing whether you're using food in the way that at least evolutionarily our bodies intended, which is as fuel, right? And you can eat for other reasons, but like that's the main reason. And then I think the second exercise is to really pay attention to how a food really truly feels, the real liking that you're getting from it when you experience it. Because again, sometimes these hyperpalatable foods that are like in our brain of like, oh, I'm so obsessed with that. When you finally sit down and notice, you're kind of, it sort of takes some of the magic away. You're like, that actually wasn't like as super delicious as I thought. And this is a practice that we use generally beyond just the domain of food in the class, just a practice of mindfulness, trying to notice what things feel like. And I think often that practice shows us this dissociation between wanting and liking where we're like, huh, I really wanted that thing, you know, whatever it was, shopping, buying something, watching the TikTok videos, eating, Mm -hmm. but I didn't actually like it as much as I thought. And sometimes I think in a more important way, it can tell us the opposite, right? Like I didn't really want to go to the gym, but I enjoyed it more than I thought, right? Like I thought this salad was just going to be the boring thing I was going to eat because Mm -hmm. I was, you know, trying to eat healthier. But when I paid attention, it was crunchy. It was delicious. It had these flavors that I didn't expect, right? And so I think that that mindful process can kind of allow us to get our wanting and liking back in sync. And it can also be, you know, an important part of the presence that just makes life better and that we can savor it and notice it more. Hmm. Okay. Do we have our assignments? Yes. I'm going to savor more. I'm going to... I need to like more, more, want less. Well, it sounds like a, I think a that's class a great, in, yeah, class a great, in Buddhism here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think, you know, the, these ancient traditions were onto something in so many domains, I think for sure when it comes to happiness, but probably when it came to food, you know, I don't think that the ancients had as complicated a relationship with food. You know, no. we went all the way back to hunter-gatherers, but I think we don't have to go back that far. I think yeah. even if we rewind Honestly, like 75, 100 years, we're, we're already getting back to cultural relationships with food that were a lot healthier. Well, that's what my parents always said when after they read the book and stuff. And my mom said that she was so surprised at how complicated my relationship with food was because she said when she grew up in Albania, like nobody was like dieting or like changing their food choices on purpose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, in some ways, it's a funny, weird privilege that we have, right? Because we have a lot of food, because we have an Mm -hmm. enormous variety of food. Yeah, but it's not a fun privilege. It's one that causes people a lot of (laughs) pain and suffering. But do you think part of the reason why, like, we have more of that today than we did before is because the food environment is so different today? I I feel like 
if the food environment is the way it is now, these problems are always going to arise because these aren't foods that necessarily promote the best eating patterns. Totally. And I think that that came hand in hand with a kind of relaxing or maybe a removal of some of the cultural traditions of food that came with it. You know, so two things kind of happened. One is I think we lost kind of culturally specific ways of eating, right, for the most part, especially in the U.S. where maybe we didn't even grow up with them. But a mm-hmm. lot of people came from family backgrounds where they, you know, had kind of these traditions of eating food. So those things were going away at the same time as I think, you know, the food industrial complex was telling us like, oh, these things are so healthy or these things are so delicious. And there were advertisements on TV You know, I mean, take an extreme example, take something like breast milk versus formula, right? Mm. You know, I was from the generation, my mom, where they were like, oh, breast milk. So totally not good. Like we want right. that, really? you know, food science energized formula. That like, was that a will thing. Be, yeah, oh, absolutely. Some oh ways it still is, you know. Really. And, and, and I think that you know that basic thing was telling you, oh, you're, you know, the the wisdom you thought you had about food that was wrong. Let's follow what the nutrition science says. Mm-hmm. You know, like Dr. Kellogg, who with his you know crackers <laughs> of like we'll control those urges and make you healthy. Eat these crackers, right? And so I think that that re- really was a moment in time that was happening as again, culturally, we were kind of abandoning what we used to do. And so in some ways, it was like a double-edged sword of these more of these hyper-palatable foods around in a way there never had been in human history, plus a kind of loss of our sort of ancestral wisdom about just how to eat. Yeah, my, when my parents came to America, they uh, my mom said that everybody here had like low-fat milk and like low-fat yogurt and stuff. And like they could not be converted because they were like, it's so gross. Like it tastes so bad in comparison. And I remember growing up and I was like, oh, you guys are so unhealthy. Like you're always, getting, you know, and my mom would make her own yogurt and w- with whole milk she would buy, right? And like, you guys are so unhealthy, blah, blah, blah. And now the narrative's completely changed where it's like people always say don't have low-fat things because they've been manipulated to take out the fat and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, damn it, they were right. They're always <laughs> right in the end. Damn it. Anyways, um, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast to talk to us about food. Thanks so much for having thank me. Thank you. And for telling us all the dumb things that the human brain does. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of them. We'll hear more. Yeah, well, I'll come back the next time and do even more. Thank you so much to Professor Santos for coming on today's episode again. It was so much fun. We will link to her podcast as well as all her work on our website. And if you want to hear bonus episodes, you can go to foodweneedtotalk.com slash membership and become part of the foodie fam. You can find us on Instagram at foodweneedtotalk. You can find me on Instagram at the official Yuna and Yuna Jada on YouTube and TikTok. You can find Eddie. Savoring and really learning to like my food. Food We Need to Talk is a production of PRX. Our senior producer is Morgan Flannery, and our producer is Megan Oftermat. Tommy Bazarian is our mix engineer. Jocelyn Gonzalez is executive producer for PRX Productions. Food We Need to Talk was co-created by Carrie Goldberg, George Hicks, Eddie Phillips, and me. For any personal health questions, please consult your personal health provider. To find out more, go to foodweneedtotalk.com. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. Woo, woo. (laughs) 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.